You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. As you do that, let me ask all of the singles in the room a question. For those who want to be in a relationship, what is it that you are looking for in someone else? What is that expressed and or implied list of those qualifications and or areas of interest and or things that you're considering that would get your attention. For those of the couples in the room, what was it for you that kind of secured the deal? What was it for you that helped you in clarity to confirm the decision to be with that other person? For those of you who are married, not just dating as couples, as you look back on the beginning of your relationship, has your answer changed over the years? Is what, what, you once, what, what you once valued, what you once prioritized, what you once loved, not as important to you anymore? And maybe what you once did not consider as important, you now realize is very important. Relationships are tricky because everybody seemingly is engaging with the expressed interest in them, but with their own report card even with the husband and wife of many, many years, if not many, many decades, can still struggle with this idea of working with different report cards of what is the area of interest and expectation? What is it should I be expecting of you and what should you be expecting of me? It's like this with Christians, not simply relationships to each other as friendships, but Christians in relationship to churches overall. What is that criteria? What is it that you are looking for? What is it that you value? And has that list changed? Is what you used to once think different than how you currently think? And, and in what way has that changed? And why has that changed? What has led to those thoughts maybe evolving or transitioning from one to another? For some Christians, when they think about a relationship with the church, they want a church that's engaging seems appropriate, that's relational, that seems reasonable, that's friendly or loving, that seems solidly biblical. But sometimes Christians can think about churches as like, I want a church that will commit to me in so much as I want it to, but doesn't expect me to commit to it. I would like to have a church that's more like, in relational terms, friends with benefits, the benefit of a relationship without only the commitment. Or perhaps a commitment with unrealistic expectations, either of yourself or of the church, or maybe wrong expectations. Well, the good news is regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our personalities and our experiences, regardless of our preferences, we can simply open the Bible and find repeatedly and consistently from the writings of God through human authors as he moved them along by the leading of the Holy Spirit, 
what should we be looking for? How should we be thinking about the church? One of the first books we went through as a church back in 2019 was the book of Titus. And the book of Titus is an interesting letter because it's a letter from Paul to a man named Titus, his disciple, as he is writing him because there's a bunch of new Christians on an island of Crete, still there today, off the coast of Greece, and a bunch of new Christians and how they need to be organized into churches based on where they lived on the island. And so Paul writes them, writes specifically Titus of how to organize what remained and how to put these churches together. And we looked at that as a church about the series on what kind of church does Jesus want to attend? Now, what kind of church does your friend want to attend? What kind of church do you want to attend? What kind of church does your parents, your grandparents want to attend or your children want to attend? What kind of church does Jesus want to attend? That's the question we should all be asking because that church we should go to. Well, we find ourselves back in Matthew 18 with clarity on that answer. Jesus tells us of the kind of church he wants to attend by telling his disciples how they should be together in relationship to each other by relationship and responsibility, by community and care. And we see this in our text. If you're just joining us for the first time tonight, it's our practice to make our way through the teachings of the Bible, kind of going consecutively through the books of the Bible. We've been in the book of Matthew for a number of months, and we're back to it. It's the writings of Matthew, one of the earliest followers of Jesus, originally a tax collector himself, which is interesting in light of what we're going to read tonight, but how he left that profession to follow Christ and to give his life to him and believe in him. The, type, the topic that Jesus teaches on is the topic of church discipline. And as we said last week, discipline is a topic that seems rarely commendable. Maybe discipline with your food consumption. Maybe discipline with a little less TV in your life. Maybe discipline with how much you do or do not use your phone after a certain time at night. But other than that, discipline can largely be typecast as a rather Oh, oppressive conversation, mean-spirited, and maybe even judgmental topic. And yet that's not at all how Jesus thinks of it, nor have Christians throughout the centuries since the teachings of Jesus. And that's exactly what we see tonight. The sad reality, though, is that so many churches today do not seem to be practicing the Bible consistently or reading it consistently because so much of it seems to be missing. There is the sad demise of many churches that can be traced to how seriously they take all of Jesus' teachings, not just the one that other people prefer or feel comfortable with. And this includes the topic of church discipline. One writer, R. Stanton Norman, writes as follows, one of the most glaring omissions in modern church life is the absence of the regular practice of church discipline. The demise of this practice may well rest in the fact that, by and large, contemporary Christians have not been taught or do not understand the concept of a New Testament church. The majority of churches today do not perceive themselves as believers joined together by the bond of the Spirit and associated by a covenant and a shared confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a common fellowship of the gospel. Contemporary Christians seem instead to understand themselves as autonomous individuals, 
casually associated together in loose-knit groupings called churches. The concept of spiritual accountability to God and to one another is tragically lacking or ignored. We see that this is a challenge, not just in the world at large, not just in our nation at large, but even within our own city, the city of Miami. How commonly Christians, by selfish preference, we are tempted to move from community to privatized religion without any accountability. Well, let's go back to our text this evening to see what Jesus has to say about this. As he's talking about in Matthew 18, the significance of being humble and what that looks like in the kingdom and causing people to sin and then taking responsibility for your own sin, Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, and how we pursue people who wander away, verses 10 through 14, we then come to our text this evening, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and following. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We said last week that what we saw in the text here is really what we kind of numerically associated as being step one, private conversation. Private conversation. This is not group gossip. This is not in any way communal uh, slander. This is a private conversation between two individuals who are related by faith in Christ. This is significant as we recognize this. Now, we have to understand, and even perhaps somebody here tonight, you're like, wow, this is rather serious conversation. Well, we want to recognize things that we should remember when talking to another person about their sin. This is a delicate conversation. It should be done according to all that the Bible teaches, not simply what's being presented here. Let me give you, just as a support to this, seven steps to remember when talking to another about sin. That's what Jesus is talking about. Number one, the motivation for the conversation is love. You're not motivated to be right. You're not motivated to be found righteous. You're motivated out of love for them. Number two, You want to, first of all, examine your own life. You examine your life first. Earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus was saying, hey, look, if you deal with somebody else's life, first deal with your own life. He's like, don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye. Take the log out of your own eye. Deal with that. And then go have the conversation. So before there's any conversation you're having with another, you are first having a conversation with yourself and the Lord, taking a look at in your own life what you need to examine. This is not to stop the process, but this is to biblically direct it. Number three, don't delay. Go quickly. Go quickly. Jesus does not intend you to just like, let me wait for the right time as basically an excuse to never find the time, but instead to pursue them quickly lest the problem grows worse. Matthew 5, he speaks about how seriously we should be taking our sin. Number four, the process involves conversation about sin. James chapter 5, verse 20, we're not interested in what you would prefer people to do. People make decisions differently than you and I make them all the time. Welcome to life. We disagree on any number of things, 
God's word does not specifically command a number of details of our life. God informs our conscience based on the command of his word, and we're free to make all kinds of decisions. Our interest in conversation is only what has been explicitly taught in scripture and can be undeniably shown as being biblical, as being a command of God for the good of his people. We also want to see number five, repentance is the goal. Repentance is the goal. Jesus says that in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, meaning if he agrees with you, if he turns from his way, you have gained your brother. The goal is not to be right. You're not building up your PR campaign about how well you know the Bible. You're not kind of in some passive-aggressive way trying to draw attention to your obedience by pointing at other people's disobedience. That's not your concern. Your concern for them is genuinely out of care that they would turn from where they're headed. Number six, practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. In a text that we'll see in two weeks, in Matthew 18, verse 22 and following, Jesus is on the heels of this entire conversation talking about forgiveness. So forgiveness and confrontation go together. They are related to each other as one has repented, so we then forgive. Number seven and final, never cease from praying through the whole process. This is not the timing as being the secret sauce. This is not the tack you take or the, or the words you use. There will always be some other ways in which you could have some very difficult conversations. You are praying that God will use you or anything else in this person's life to do this work. And what Jesus says here in Matthew 18, verse 15, if he listens to you, it's done. It's done. Most conversations between Christians is happening like this if there's part of any kind of biblical relationships. But look at what he says in verse 16 of Matthew 18. He says, just returning to our text, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We spoke about this last week. This is second step additional help additional help. And this is this idea that maybe you are looking at it wrongly, and you are the one who is inaccurate in what you're perceiving as a concern, and other people who also are familiar with the Scriptures, who also have a relationship to them as a member of the same church, as Christians caring for each other, they're involved in the conversation, not so they can declare you the winner and the other friend the loser, but they want to make sure God's Word is being represented clearly and accurately. Sometimes our conflict can create distractions in personalities and communication. So this help is indeed a help of communal care for each other. That takes us now to where we left off from last week. Look now to verse 17. Look at what it says there. If he refuses to listen to them, who's a them? Well, it's verse 16, one or two others along with you. If he refuses to listen to this group of people, Tell it to the church. This is third step here, which is public care and accountability. Public care and accountability. This idea here with the elders' oversight of the church, as we know that the New Testament teaches, is that we see here it is the responsibility from the individual to the small group of caring Christians to now the community of Christians to be brought in on the conversation that they might engage in the conversation by way of prayer on behalf of these people involved or pursuit. I venture to say most people in this room, and I could certainly be wrong, 
most people in this room have probably never been a part of a church where this was carried out. And I say that without any kind of judgmentalism. I say that because back to my earlier quote of how commonly this is not practiced, it is a point of confusion at best and maybe concern at worst. Confusion like, I'm still confused. What are we talking about? Again, we're, we're just reading the words of Jesus to his disciples of how they're to interact together. So this confusion like, this is still very new for me, or concern, this sounds troubling. But let me ask you a question. What's more troubling? The uncomfortability of Jesus' teachings or the knowing disobedience of Jesus' teachings. I think for many of us, we're tempted to say, what's more troubling is the uncomfortability of Jesus' teachings. But what did Jesus teach in the Great Commission? Matthew 28, later on at the end of this book, he says to go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey most of what I commanded, or at least the parts that they prefer. No, he didn't actually say that. He said, teach them to obey all that I commanded. So saying it to you differently, right now, I am wanting to fulfill the great commission by teaching all that Christ commanded. Here it is. Just cleanly and simply, doing so pastorally that it might not be understood, or misunderstood rather. The question is asked, well, what, how was this communicated? When he, Jesus says, tell it to the church, is this just like a giant gossip fest? By no means. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, speaks about, in the context of the church at Ephesus, how we should be careful to not speak what is shameful, even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. There's a level of discretion here. It's simply the idea that it must be known what one is doing so that they can come back from it and be called by their brothers and sisters. Think of a giant family meal by which you're being asked to return back to the family in obedience to what the Heavenly Father has asked all of us to do. Let's be very clear, friends. The concern in the text is actually not with the original sin that's being brought up by the Christian. Hear me say this. The concern is the lack of repentance about that. There is only one issue being addressed here by way of continued explanation. It's the lack of repentance. Friends, Christians, like you and like me, sin all the time. We're not happy about that. To be quite honest, we're at times quite embarrassed about that. Our non-Christian friends sometimes see us do it and they're like, yo, what's that about? I thought you were a Christian. You're like, I know. That's not what the Bible taught me to do. That doesn't honor Christ. Forgive me for giving an inconsistent example of what it means to follow Christ's example and to live by faith in Christ alone. I, I was inconsistent. I, you are right to see that. The, the problem is not do Christians sin. That's not the issue here. The problem is what do Christians do when they're made aware of their sins? By their conscience or by the conversations they're having together. Then what do you and I do? 
That's what Jesus is addressing here. That's what he is wanting to be a part of the larger sort of concentric circle of rings of conversation moving from small one-on-one to larger conversation is what he is talking about. So we go from public care and accountability. Now look back, if you will, at what he says there, verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile and a tax collector. This is fourth step, public discipline. Now, I cannot help but to wonder, and I mean this just by curious hopefully sanctified imagination, what was it like for Matthew to write this, who was himself a former tax collector? Now, if you're new to the Bible, let me just explain this to you briefly. Being a tax collector is basically a traitor to your people. Jesus uses two categories to basically come to the same summary conclusion. You'll notice what he says here. He says, let him be treated like, let him be considered as, let him be viewed as, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile was primarily a non-Jewish person who was involved in paganism of no relationship to, of no connection to the people of God as an Israelite. So a Jewish person by default, outside the teaching of Scripture, by default would have not honored in any way associate with the Gentile unless they had converted to Judaism, but even then they couldn't participate in all of the temple worship at a court of Gentiles at a stand-in. They couldn't even come to the full part of the temple in Jerusalem. But then he didn't talk about just simply the Gentile. He talks about the tax gatherer, tax collector. This person would be a Jewish outcast person, somebody who was a Jew ethnically, but had basically cheated on his people because he said, I will work for the imposing enemy military force who has occupied our land. I will collect taxes, taxes rather, from my people and give it to that foreign government. And the way I make money is I never make it quite clear how much of the money I'm collecting from you goes to Rome versus I keep. But because you can see how good of a life I live, how rich I am, you can probably realize how much of this I'm probably keeping for myself. To be Jewish as a tax collector is to be hated. And that was Matthew's background, the very person who's writing this. So Jesus grabs a hold of these imagery, these associations, let him be to you like. What's he speaking about here? His use of the term does not mean that the church is to treat people badly. It simply means that when a professing believer refuses to repent of their sin, that's clearly, biblically, patiently shown to them over time, the church is to treat him or her as if if they were outside of the fellowship. They're not to let them associate and participate in the blessings and benefits of the Christian assembly. One profoundly embarrassing example of this is in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's a letter to another church, not in Rome, not in Jerusalem, but a church in Corinth, and there's a guy in the church who's having sex with his stepmom. And people like you know about it. 
and we all just agree to not talk about it. And Paul's like, yo, are you for real? You, you know what I know about this guy? And you're not dealing with that? You need to deal with that because if I show up, I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to deal with you guys. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, because if you let that go, acting like, use modern day language, who am I to judge? Who amongst us hasn't done bad things? What makes me your judge? Jesus said, you know, turn the other cheek. You could just see how we kind of selectively grab parts of the Bible to just basically support our cowardice approach towards people. That's not loving, by the way. That's unloving. We love ourselves when we do that. We don't love other people. Paul says, you need to deal with that because if you don't, that virus will spread to the church. You won't have any means by which you can address what the Bible addresses, which is not Christians of perfect lives, but the direction of our life is to continue to grow in godliness to put off the temptations of the flesh, to say no to what so easily entangles us, as Hebrews says. So what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 18 is this idea of being ostracized from the Christian community, not to punish, but to awaken. To awaken that Christian to the reality that their sin has consequences in order to bring them back in repentance. Persons should not be left alone. They should be pursued in a manner that their sin is brought to attention and that they are held accountable. If they are truly a Christian, having been put out of the body of Christ, God will not cast them away. God will allow perhaps even that time to sink deeper in their life, but to use that misery to say, nothing this world offers me. That mistress, that man, that possession, nothing this world offers me will be better than what God offers me with a clean conscience before him and the integrity of my life restored back to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see good news that happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul is encouraging them to restore such a person. We don't know if it's the same man in 1 Corinthians 5, but it is somebody who's like, hey, bring them back, love them. Now, some people inevitably say, what gives you the right to do this? Who made you judge and jury and executioner? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's read it together. Look at the text. Verse 18. Matthew 18, verse 18. Truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking here, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay, let's talk about what this means and what this does not mean. Jesus is introducing this term about binding and loosing. These are familiar terms in Jewish culture used by rabbis. Rabbis are Jewish teachers. 
These would be familiar terms that they would be familiar with as a Jewish audience, and this idea was how that they would judge matters based on the Bible. The Jewish authorities would determine how or whether or not they should. The scriptures applied to a specific situation and where judgment was needed. But notice where Jesus puts the authority. He doesn't put it in the rabbi's hands. He puts it in the church's hand, where two or three of you are gathered. Referring to the disciples gathered as a church. That's the understanding here. And what's interesting is we don't even really have the fullness of the church being understanding until after Jesus ascends and resurrects and ascends, but this is sort of an early representation of it. The church has such authority. Now, let's speak to the pink elephant in the room. And I don't mean this to be mean or to make fun of. But I venture to say, for those of you who have been a Christian for maybe any length of time, year, two, five years, you have probably sat with some Christians together in the living room, somewhere together, closed your eyes and you bowed your head, and probably in that moment somebody said, God, we know because your word says where two or three are gathered You are there, so we know because we're gathered, you're here now. And then you go on to make your request. I want to just encourage you to know God is present with you when you pray. Whether or not there's two or three of you or just one of you, He is present with you. And that text is not a text for prayer meetings. It's a text for the authority, the prerogative of the church when gathered together to make such decisions on behalf of Christ. Now, that does not mean you now armed with your biblical knowledge, you parachute into prayer meetings and plow them down with how they should be better using the Bible. No, just people just bless their heart. They're trying to say things well. But just to be clear, whatever you pray in my name, is not Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, there's a couple of us here. Can the dolphins please win, Lord? Please, Lord. I mean, the heat, it would just be glorious to make it to the playoffs again, Lord. Please. There's a couple of us. It's not just me asking. Two or three of us are here. Okay? This is not like, I found a verse that supports my desire to get with my friends and kind of have a genie in the bottle moment, rub it through prayer, God will appear, and he will give you what you desire. That's, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is a rather sober-minded reality of what it means to be in community, deciding accordingly as representation of the authority of Christ. And all of this, people will have, and I completely understand it, some objections. If we were right now in a class, some of you might raise your hand right now and you might say, I got a question. Or if we're doing a Q&A like we did last week, you're like, my friend has a question, which goes by your same first and last name. Let's think of these some objections. Objection number one. If you do this, this is going to cause divisions in the church. This is going to cause divisions. Obedience to Christ and His Word is more important than any artificial unity built on disobedience and compromise. A lack of discipline will contribute to greater disunity in the church. So short-sighted, short-gained unity built around compromise and lack of biblical integrity is not true unity. Number two, if you do this, it'll, it would be judging 
Doesn't Jesus say, don't judge, right? I mean, Matthew 7, 1 to 5, read it for yourself. Jesus says, don't judge. This sounds like you're judging. So again, be clear, we're just reading the words of Jesus. The same person who said Matthew 7 said, Matthew 18, if guilt is clearly established and is essential, then the person has judged themselves. As long as he or she refuses to repent, they continue to pronounce themselves guilty. The church is only declaring what Christ has already declared from his word. Number three, as an objection, we're all sinners, so how can we condemn another person? Yes, we are all sinners. That is completely accurate. The problem is not the presence of sin. The problem is the awareness of the presence of sin, as biblically explained, and the continued refusal to turn from it. We do not condemn anybody. We only pronounce what God's word has said. I have no authority over your life. Only God's word has that voice. Fourth objection. How can I trust the spiritual leaders in confidence with any sin problems I might have, right? I mean, if I bring my problems to you, am I just making myself eligible to some future discipline in a moment? Absolutely not. The very fact that you're wanting to have a conversation about sin in your life is a display that you want to deal with the sin in your life. That's not, that's not you keeping it private and unrepentant. That's you saying, help, help. I don't know what to do. I'm ensnared in this. I'm trapped in this. I, I keep saying, God help me, and I keep going back to it. I know probably every person who is a Christian here tonight has found themselves asking God again and again and again and again to please forgive them and please help them from not going back to that same sin they did before. Welcome to the struggle, friends. Number five, it seems unloving. Wouldn't it be better to try to lead him or her gradually out of sin? Well, certainly, right? I mean, 1 Peter 4 says, love covers a multitude of sins. So to be very clear, this isn't like, ooh, single offense, let's do this. No. This is an ongoing reality of what is perpetual and persistent and very concerning in someone's life that would need to be addressed. If progress is visible, sanctification is happening, then there should be patience in that. I mean, I just have to tell you, honestly, as a pastor, I deal with, not only my own life as a Christian, because just to remind you, pastors are Christians too, but I deal with like tons of other people's Christian lives, and there's probably like nothing you're going to tell me about someone else that's like, oh, yeah, I'm aware of that. Are you concerned? Yeah, I'm concerned. Should we do something about it? We probably should. Depends on what, what it is and how long we've been aware of it. Are you concerned? Yeah, I'm concerned. But if they're in Christ, I'm confident that God is doing a work in them. And it might be painful. It might be hard. It might take a while. But I'm not going to panic. Because Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 told me that he who began a good work will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. That does not mean by excuse, I'm not going to do anything about it. That just means I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to panic. It doesn't mean I'm not going to cry. It doesn't mean I'm not going to plead. It doesn't mean I'm not going to pray. It doesn't mean I'm not going to pursue, but I'm not going to panic. 
Because I know when God works in your life, like when God works in my life, He uses all kinds of circumstances and people and providence. And all I need to know is take responsibility for myself in pursuing somebody else. Like I'd want somebody else to take responsibility for themselves in pursuing me. A sixth potential objection. Why follow the procedure if the offender decides to leave the church on his own? It's not uncommonly the case. People are like, oh, wow, you guys got serious. You started reading all the Bible. And that didn't go well for me. And they want just like, you know what, I'll do this. I'll just like, it's like junior high. We're going to break up. You know, I'll break up with you. We're done. No. Why do we continue this pursuit of this process? Because to permit this would be construed as sweeping sin under the carpet. The failure to discipline is an admission of the idea that there's no spiritual power or authority in the act, but simply just breaking of outward ties. That's not the point. We're trying to honor the Lord, which gets to now what I want to say to you as the far, final part here, which are what are those purposes? Why do we do this? What are these? And so I've got 10 purposes of church discipline. I'm thankful for James Amandus' help with this list. Let me give you these 10 purposes. Why? Number one, to glorify God by obedience to his instructions. We want to glorify God by obedience to his instructions. Number two, we want to restore unrepentant believers. We want to restore unrepentant believers. The third purpose of church discipline, we want to purify the message of the church. Number four, we want to deny Satan any advantage in the church. Number five, we want to prove that the leaders do indeed love you and care for you. A lot of times leaders are tempted to not want to talk to anybody about their lives lest they stop coming, stop giving, stop liking, stop recommending. Those are cowardly leaders who love themselves more than they love Christ. Number six, to confirm individual responsibility for one another. That you indeed take responsibility for each other's lives. Number seven, to deter others from sin. Number eight, to cut emotional ties with unrepentant Christians, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Number nine, to protect Scripture from perversion and error. And number 10, to lead a brother or sister to repentance. That would be the goal. On November 2nd, 2009, two Russian mountaineers, Igor and Amphisa, plus two other friends of theirs were climbing the Four Girls Mountain in Sichuan Province, China. These four Russians were on a backpacking and climbing trip at an elevation of 6,200 feet. The climbers stopped to take pictures. It was just such a beautiful place. They were just amazed by it. And while they were there, an avalanche broke loose above them and just totally wiped them out. Three of them were buried. But the fourth one that was not buried was able to locate one of his friends and dig them out. Two more they could not find on their own and could not dig them out. Because of that, the Russians called for help. Because they're in China... Those that replied were 
the Chinese mountaineering crew that responded. The problem was the Russians couldn't speak Chinese and the Chinese couldn't speak Russian. And the rescuers couldn't understand each other, but they could understand enough to know what the problem was and what needed to be done. So eventually, 30 Chinese rescue climbers climbed to their location searching for their missing climbers. Snow, weather conditions, messed up all of the search mission. But the Chinese government vowed to do everything they could to be able to find these men in the avalanche. Sadly, this is not the first time and it will not be the last time that these people, that people like this were buried. And they never did find those two climbers. What stuck out to me, though, as I read this story, is the response of the Chinese. The response was not, well, you didn't file your travel plans with us. We didn't know you were going to be here. Therefore, we're disavowing ourselves of all responsibility. You got yourself in this mess. Or they didn't say, well, you're not Chinese. You're not one of us, so we're not going to help you. It's a bummer this happened here. If you're in Russia, you could maybe ask your nation people, but that's not us, so we're not going to help. Or you can't speak our language, so we're not going to help and communicate with you because honestly, it's too difficult to just do that, let them do this work. So what happened? They vowed to help and do anything and everything that they could. Shouldn't we as Christians be that loving to one another when we're buried under an avalanche of our own sin? But how often do many of us say, well, that's not my responsibility. They didn't ask me what I thought of that decision before they made it. Or you know what, I don't want to get in that mess because that looks hard. And I'm not sure I want to do something that that's hard. Or you know what? That's just not what my area is. It's not who I am. That's actually not how God intends us to think through this. God intends every Christian to be a member of his search and rescue team. Prayerfully, humbly, lovingly, biblically, pursuing each other out of care and concern. Now, for those of you who are not in Christ, recognize this. This is a message tonight for Christians on how we interact together since giving our faith to Christ. God's love for any one of us, including you who are not a Christian, is not secured because of what you do or do not do. God's care for you and love for you has been demonstrated already in what He has done by offering His Son as a substitute, as an exchange for your life. That in His obedience, you would get credit. In His death, you would get life. And the only thing God asks by response is that you would acknowledge that you're a sinner who needs forgiveness. So what's interesting about the life of a Christian is it began the way it should continue. It began with repentance. It began with acknowledging, I have broken God's law. I have no peace, no way to address that apart from God's grace through faith in Christ, and I give my life to Him. 
If you're not a Christian, friend, that's where you begin. I'm not concerned about what drugs you're taking. I'm not concerned about what sex you're having. I'm not concerned about what crimes you're committing. What sin. I'm concerned about the fact that you would continue to live your life unrepenting, rebelling against your Creator, believing that you either A, can ignore His presence and not be responsible for Him at the end, or B, acknowledge He's present and hope you can barter with Him through enough good works and promise not to do as many bad works as others. You will find yourself condemned for eternity because God is the very thing you hope Him to be, which is just. And He's also gracious to all those who would believe in His Son for the forgiveness of their sins would be forgiven. For those of us who are in Christ, God intends us to then live like that. In community, caring for each other, patiently, biblically, and lovingly as a part of a meaningful relationship to Him and the church. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.